When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You grew up in Toronto, and your broadcasting career started at the University of Western Ontario. Tell us about your humble beginnings at uh, Western. <laughs> um, well, I was a student at Western. I was a politics student. And um, in my second year, uh, the students' council there decided to fund a, you know, a little startup radio station. At the time, it was didn't even have a broadcast license. It was broadcast over the wires to a couple of residences on campus. I didn't even know you could send broadcasting through electricity that way, but you could. So basically you would plug in your uh, radio at the time and be able to receive um, the CHRW signal. And they had some old equipment that they owned from a previous attempt to start up a radio station. Uh, the difference this time is they hired a professional program director, a guy named Pat Nagel, who's still in radio, I think, at CBC up in Iqaluit. Anyway, so they had a meeting. I wasn't interested in being a DJ. I was interested in seeing whether they wanted to do some news and public affairs broadcasting. And at first, the answer was no, we're just not interested in that. So then I went away and I thought, no, I'm going to try again. And I, I put together a little manual and I put together a, an, an idea for it and uh, went back to Pat and I said, you know, this is what we want to try. And uh, I found about 12 people that are interested in trying it. And so he said, okay, let's, let's give it a whirl. So, so that was kind of my journalism school. I never went to formal journalism training. I, I sort of learned over the next two years at CHRW and, you know, set up interviews, uh, got programs running, um, tried to manage a staff of volunteers. And uh, that was kind of my birth by fire. Yeah, because it says that you were involved with the Western Mustangs football, and also you were the first news director. So uh, I yeah. mean, that's that's, and I mean that was through your own initiative of doing that. So that's that's definitely something that's very cool. It was uh, yeah, the football thing. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a big football fan, but uh, yeah, we 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 broadcast the first Mustangs football game from at the time a place called JW Little Stadium. Now, after you you graduated from Western, you landed your first broadcasting job at Global in 1981 as a reporter. How long was it after you graduated that you got that gig? Well, I actually didn't start as a reporter. I started as what they called an editorial assistant, which paid a a whole $12,000 a year. So I bunked with another guy I met there who wanted to be a cameraman. Uh, My job was basically making coffee and distributing eight-ply wire coffee. God, I'm sounding ancient just as I say it. So I was kind of like the newsroom gopher. Not paid well. My roommates thought I was crazy to take the job because it was so poorly paid. But my strategy was, well, take the, take the lowest entry job you can take in a newsroom that, that you're interested in. And I was a big fan of Global News at Western. And Peter Truman in particular, who ended up becoming a really important mentor in my life. And he was the anchor and sort of managing editor of the, of the newscast. So I still remember the first day on the job. I was thrilled to get it. And then I walked in the room and, you know, just the buzz of a newsroom and the people in it, I, I instantly felt, I remember going home and telling my mother, I think I found my tribe. Like these are, I didn't know these people existed that all had the same sort of instincts and interests and, and attitude towards things. And, and so that was sort of really confirming to me that, 
that journalism is at least where I wanted to start my career. And I mean, the joke's on your roommates because, I mean, you, you spent, I, I'm guessing, five years there and then you joined CTV as a parliamentary correspondent and then two years later you joined CBC as a reporter and anchor and even filling in as a host on The National. So, like, that's quite impressive for a short amount of time from going from being a gopher to, you know, going to co-hosting The National. So explain the move first from global to CTV and then to CBC. Well, I mean, I think one of the truths of this profession and maybe all professions is sometimes it's easy to to move ahead by by jumping between places. I mean, Global was great. I was there for six years, but I would always, I felt in my mind anyway, it would always be the kid that they gave the chance to. So I felt I needed to leave Global in order to be taken more seriously as a, as a reporter. And then luckily, you know, CBC was interested, CBC and uh, CTV was interested. It, it was pretty good timing because we had two kids at, uh, along the way and we wanted my wife to be able to stay at home and that became really economically difficult at certain parts we just i just wasn't earning enough money so i was always kind of uh looking out for you know an opportunity to earn more money and having people hire you tends to make that possible so so we, i was sort of able to hold off the the economic uh, crisis that would mean that my wife would have to go back to work I, we were lucky that way and I, i'm just wondering was this around the same time because you know global was just kind of coming into its own fold and uh, I read in an interview that you said that you believe that Global was they were in the game but not in the act news wise so was that kind of a reason to jump to just to kind of get into a, a, a more established brand yeah I mean at the time Global was a network that was just in Ontario mostly so they were a smaller player with big aspirations, but you know, moving to CTV and CBC, were, which at the time were the only true national broadcasters, was clearly a step up. The pay was better, the assignments were better, and then that's how I got to really explore the country. We lived out in Halifax, lived in Ottawa three times, with CBC, lived in Alberta, covered northern Canada a lot, did a lot of political reporting. So there was a lot more movement at CBC and CTV to help you grow than there was Global at the time. Global, of course, now has become a kind of like the, the big three. You got CBC, CTV, yeah. and Global. So uh, that's nice to, uh, to see them definitely grow. Now, a big thing for me is... Uh, a journalist that I think is always interesting is, you know, like sometimes you kind of feel like you reached your peak in Canada, like those are the only three, but you also serve some time. Uh, I make it sound like you were a war veteran here. Um, you also serve some time down in the States uh, for ABC News covering or co-anchoring Good Morning America and Nightline. Now, the reason I know this prior to research is because I was a big fan of TGIF as a kid. And oh, yeah. sometimes Nightline interfered with my TGIF. So when it came on the screen, Nightline with Kevin Newman, I was like, this Kevin Newman guy is ruining my TGIFs. So uh, <laughs> it, it was very interesting. But uh, what was that move like? And were you nervous? I was scared shitless, to be honest. I mean, the, the truth is, um, my time at the CB, uh, CBC had not ended all that well. They wanted to take me off a show I was doing at the time called Midday and have someone else come in and, um, and anchor it, and then sort of didn't talk to me for a couple of months about what was next for me. So I figured I was done there, and fortunately, tremendously fortunately for me, ABC came calling at that point. And so, you know, it, it might have looked like, you know, it was a move up, but it was mostly a desperation move. I was 
convinced I was about to be out of work and that my career in journalism in Canada was over. So so we went there, but I, I still remember my first six months, I was working on an overnight show called World News Now, which is still on, and I highly recommend it. It's still fun to watch. But I was down in New York by myself for six months while my wife, Kathy, and the kids finished off school and got things arranged. And I was overwhelmed. I was working a night shift. New York is a big thing. ABC seemed impossibly hard to reach to. I mean, I was working there, but, you know, I, I felt largely like a fake um, because there were such giants of journalism there, like Peter Jennings and, T and Ted Koppel and many others. It took me a while to believe that I actually belonged there. You know, part of it was the fact that I really missed my family. So, you know, once we were all reunited and we could live in New Jersey together, things calmed down. I started to catch a rhythm. But, you know, I'm not sure I've ever told this story before, but I remember one weekend in New York by myself and I was jogging around Central Park and there'd been a lot of pressure and a lot of change. And, you know, I had a lot of residual feelings from what happened to me at the CBC. So I ended up sitting on a rock and almost crying my eyes out for like half an hour just about how scared I was. I wasn't sure I was going to make it in New York. It's a tough, competitive place. And, you know, America chews up people that can't compete well. So, I, yeah, I was pretty frightened, I gotta say, and um, pretty unsure of my own talents and of my own ability and, you know, feeling kind of bruised that I felt I had to leave Canada because it wasn't anything that I really wanted to do. It's definitely, that's an interesting story. I mean, even Peter Mansbridge, I remember, was offered a CB, I think it was CBS at the time, and he didn't take it. And, like, it seems like that's a it's one of those things that with American news, even if you're very credible in Canada, it is a big jump to go down in the States and uh, get all that pressure. I know I interned with Global in Toronto and I just didn't felt or didn't feel like they were using me all that much. So I came back to Ottawa. But even at that time, I kind of felt like, what are you doing? You just blew your chance of uh, getting your career started. But I, I, I felt like I could do something on my own. So that's why uh, I started a podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, as you know, in the business right now. You know, the business models are just being disrupted. You know, with two kids and, and, a, and a wife, you know, who, who wasn't working out of the home, it was, you know, it was frankly a godsend that ABC came at me because the salary was better. And the work was good. I mean, um, at the time, ABC was the market leader. And to, to leave CBC and to join, you know, ABC and all these great journalists was quite something. I mean, the difference in Canada is, is you know, you, you make an argument for a story, you have to take in the economic reality of like a smaller country, how much it costs to travel, well, how can you do it, you know, for a lower cost. Whereas when, you, when I got to ABC, it was like this sandbox that had all the tools you could ever want in it. So if the piece failed, it wasn't because you had to make some sort of decision to save money. It was because you made the wrong decision editorially or you just weren't up to snuff. So it took away sort of all the Canadian excuses for not being able to do as thorough a job as you wanted, most of which were economic. And for a good, almost a decade, I was able to play, you know, with everything that I needed to tell stories well. And that was, uh, that was incredible. Yeah. And then, of course, you found your way back to Canada in 2001. I mean, Global giving you the anchor and the executive editor job, that definitely drew you in. But of course, uh, coming back and... Uh, your family, of course, being in Canada, you obviously that drew you back in as well. But I, I want to ask you this too. In 2010, you resigned from Global. Was it just to spend more time with family, personal reasons, or? 
Uh, it was a couple of reasons. I was pretty burnt out. Um, I've been doing a daily newscast for 10 years, and Global National, I, I think, will always sort of be my legacy project because, you know, I, 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 I helped create it, and it was kind of my vision initially uh, of, of what it could be. And it was, uh, you know, as you say, Global's chance to, that was the moment where they were finally becoming a national network. And, you know, they they contributed, you know, $9 million into building that newscast. And that's a significant investment on their part. But it was never anywhere nearly as well-resourced as CTV is. And so everybody who works on it works extra hard. And I, I got really tired. And I, my health suffered. And, you know, uh, there were couple of editorial differences along the way and so I, I thought at a certain point you know I kind of reached 50 and I thought oh do I want to do something else can I continue to do this for another 10 to 15 years and I finally said I couldn't and so you know because it was a so personal to me as a project I wanted to make sure that it could outlive me because I was so closely associated with it that you know I, I, I wanted to put some sort of end to it at a point where someone like Donna Friesen could come in you know, and, and make it her own. And and so I talked to my family about it, and I said, I, I really need to rest. I'm just not happy and I'm not healthy. And so uh, they supported me, and, and I talked to Global, you know, a good three or four months ahead of um, the end of my contract, and I said, I'm not going to sign another one. You should begin looking for someone to replace me, and uh, let's let's work on this transition together. And, and we did. It's like a, a dynasty or like, you know, being Canadian, I'll reuse a hockey reference. It's like building your own kind of Stanley Cup contender. Like you, you want to see the team do well. But when you think, hey, um, we've got a lot of players on this team that can step up. If I decide that, hey, my time's come, I want to see the team succeed and not, uh, you know, they my overwelcome. Or if you're not feeling well in that place, you don't want to drag it down either. Yeah, and you knew, I mean, uh, Kevin Spacey had a good phrase that I've used several times, which is, you know, if you've been lucky enough to ride a good elevator to the top, make sure you send it down at the right time. I think some people, you know, hang on to these positions for a long time, and the natural evolution of something can be kind of distorted through that. I, because I was tired and because there was no way Global was really going to increase the resources for that show, I just, I just felt the time was right. And, you know, I've been able to since do a whole variety of things that I would never have been able to do if I'd been locked into doing a daily newscast every day. And yeah, and that ties in perfectly to where I was going to go with this because you did so many things with CTV two years later, hosting Question Period. You've been on CTV hosting Kevin Newman Live, filling in for the CTV National News. You're the host and editor of the weekly investigative program W5. That's that's a lot of big roles, you know. So, uh, what do you what do you prefer, or sh- I should say, prefer doing out of all those tasks? Well, one of the things I've learned about myself is I, I'm I'm kind of project driven. I don't have the temperament to, you know, sit in an anchor chair for two or even three decades. I like new things. So, um, the, these last five years since I've left Global have actually been pretty interesting because I've had so many different projects that they've entrusted me with that. You know, I, I don't have a second to be bored, actually. I'm still, even at W5, I've been here for like four years, and this is my second year as a host. I'm still learning new things about this, um, and, and I'm learning about investigative journalism in a way that I didn't have the opportunity to when I was doing mostly daily journalism. So I'm, I'm always happiest when I'm challenged and when I'm tackling something new and satisfying my curiosity about things. But I can honestly say that every task I've had and, and been fortunate enough to be given, I, I've, been, I've enjoyed to equal measure. 
And of course, you want success, but with that, you also realize that uh, failure will come along the way as well. Um, sure, and I, I think I've, I've probably failed more than I've succeeded. I mean, I got replaced on midday. Uh, Good Morning America didn't work. Uh, Kevin Newman Live was canceled after only seven months. So I've felt that and I've learned that over time. And, you know, that's why when you have something that works, it's, uh, it's particularly sweet. <laughs> Talk about that because, I mean, th- this is what a lot of young journalists like myself kind of, we understand what the economy is like now, but in speaking from your own terms, what kind of advice can you give to someone that, you know, not to be always, I guess, down on yourself because there are students out there that have the talent. It's just that there's nothing opened. So what are some advice oh, for man. success? You're, you're absolutely right. And I can't tell you, I mean, it doesn't seem every week I have somebody in my office who, you know, I know is talented and I know, you know, 20 years ago would have no problem finding work, but it's hard because news operations, you know, are shedding people into, to, to at least in the, in the private sector and to, to get in is really hard. The only advice that I give them is that, you know, be as multi- talented as you can be like spend your spare time you know editing video that you shoot just so you get better at that because you need to be able to do you know any number of things now to be able to get a foot in the door such a tough time consumption habits for what we do are changing so profoundly and so quickly so unfortunately you know I, I don't I don't have a good answer for that. I wish there weren't so many journalism schools in some ways because <laughs> their economic model is that they need the students to continue, you know, supporting their faculty. But there, there needs to be an assessment of, of, of what is the true size of the market now and, and, and where is that market going. Now, that's not to say people aren't getting work. They are, but it's taking a lot longer and the persistence required and the patience required is uh, profound. Now, see, you wish there wasn't so many journalism schools where I kind of wish there wasn't so much, uh, I guess, platforms, because platforms can be good in a way and bad. Like, I'm looking at news outlets like CBC, CTV, and Global, and then when you have, you know, um, like, Vice is something that I see on Facebook. They have, like, Vice Sports, and I'm looking, I'm like, some of this stuff to me isn't journalism, but they get credit to be journalism, and it, it kind of, as a journalist myself, I kind of look at it and say, like, I wish we just had the main three or four stations just so like we don't always have this kind of, I guess what I'll use is fake news kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think vice is, is legitimate journalism. You know, uh, Facebook is, a, is just hasn't done anything original. <laughs> you know, I, I keep, I keep thinking that that will happen eventually uh, because as you know, the traditional news sources begin to atrophy uh, even more um, and I, I've, I've spoken to Google about this and just said, look, who's going to fund documentary work and investigative work going forward? And, you know, at this point, there's no answer in Canada. I mean, in the United States, there are private foundations that fund this kind of thing, but that's not part of what we've created in Canada. So these are tricky times. I want to talk about your relationship with your son, Alex. Uh, you published a book, All Out, A Father and Son uh, Confront the Hard Truths, uh, or Hard Truth, uh, that made them better men. Uh, how important was it uh, in doing that with your relationship with Alex? Wow, it was, it was profound. I mean, in the process of writing it, I discovered that my son 
had a very different view of me as a father than I had of myself. I thought I'd done a pretty good job, been pretty open. I thought I'd responded well at 17 uh, when he came out as a gay man. I thought, you know, in a very busy professional life that, you know, when I was home, I was focused and that there was some understanding that that part of what gave him the comfortable life that he had was the sacrifices that I made working so hard. Those were not his views. He had a very different story of, of me as uh, somebody who was disappointed in him, who was never there when he wanted me to be, who he thought was much more homophobic than I was. And I was a little homophobic, but he, he thought I was terribly homophobic. And, and so in the process of the writing of the book, uh, we each wrote our own chapters uh, talking about similar events in our relationship, not sharing what we were saying about them, and at the end of it, exchanged our copies of, of, of the same kind of story, uh, timeline and um, realized through that that each of us had a different story and, um, and, began, and then we began a really good, constructive conversation so that now, I mean, my son's 30 now, we're, we have a really tight, close relationship and, and, and we're friends. And obviously that's, that's good because it helped the relationship. But at the time, how tough was it to hear like those kind of comments of like him thinking you were something that you obviously weren't? Um, it was tough, you know, uh, uh, but, but I was thankful for it because, you know, so often in life it's what's unsaid that ends up becoming poisonous. And, and I didn't want poison between us. I, I, you know, I love the man. He's, he's so important to me. And so when I, again, maybe this is my project-oriented mind, but when I was confronted with the fact that we had work to do, I dug in. You know, I, I really worked hard at, I mean, one of the things I did was I, I, I came out myself. I had to be very public about my degree of homophobia. And we, st we shared stages together where I talked about my failures as a father. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I took it on and I tried to learn. I tried to listen to him and he had a lot of very good points from a perspective of a, of a kid and a teenager. I, I understood that. And I, and I think he, he got to know me a lot better too and my own insecurities and how often I felt like a failure. It never occurred to him that the reason, for instance, that our family moved so much is because I was getting fired so much. He thought I was just this like super aggressive career guy. And for him, it was a revelation of, no, I was trying to keep food on, on your table and, and stuff like that. So that kind of open dialogue and understanding, you know, I mean, our hope is that, you know, it, it was about our relationship as two men, father and son, but there've been plenty of um, gay uh, parents, parents of gay kids that have come to me and, and said, you know, thanks for showing, you know, men a way to have a conversation with their gay sons that, you know, many are incapable of having. So, so that's felt really good. And that's where I want to tie this in with the last question here is you mentioned about the gay families coming up and really appreciating you, uh, you know, not only knowing your own faults, but being able to accept them and, you know, uh, kind of turn the cheek on it. But like, what is some advice that you can give to maybe some kids who are afraid of coming out to their parents or even parents who their son or daughter came out and they they don't know how to react what are some advice that you can give yeah well number one it takes time you know when kids come out it's the end of a very tortuous period for them and most of my friends who are gay have have said you know the, the relief about being able to be who you are you know and i know in alex's case he roared out of the closet it was like 
he just like lived his life fully as soon as he could live his truth. For the parents, um, quite often it's news to them. And so uh, the process that the kids have gone through over, you know, their lives is something that, that, that the kids are sometimes not patient enough for their parents about. It takes them time to adjust. It takes some time to learn. And, and so you're on two different timelines. And so what I tell <coughs> young people who ask is, is, you know, be patient, guide them, be willing to open and understand that, that they need time. And, and for the dads, particularly, because I think dads are the problem in many of these relationships, and which is so sad, you know, moms seem to be the more accepting ones. For dads, I just say, you know, just remember, you know, they're, they're still men, they're still women. You have a role in their lives. And just begin the conversation um, by admitting your own fears, admitting your own vulnerability about the conversation, and let your children teach you. That's going to do it for this episode of Tobin Tonight. Our thanks to Kevin Newman for coming on the show. Remember, you can find past, present, and future episodes on TobinTonight.com, Spotify, and iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and leave a comment or two. For Tobin and myself, this is Jacob Sane. Thanks for listening, and good night. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. We all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.